morning. My name is James. It's so great to be with you guys again here this morning. And we are in week five of our series called But God this week. And uh, each week we are looking at a different aspect of, uh, of someone in Scripture, a situation where people are facing trials and difficulties or pain, and it's followed by those two incredible words of but God, where God presences himself in the midst of it, sometimes with miraculous deliverance, other times through just a long-term place of him being present day by day, week by week, year by year with them. And each week we've been having someone share a testimony of something recently where they've experienced this in their own life. And so this week we have the privilege of having Elisa Handley share with us this morning as our topic. The title for this morning is In the Midst of Anxiety and Despair, But God. And so thank you, Elisa, so much for doing our reading this morning and for a testimony for us today. Appreciate it. All right. All right, good morning. Um, this morning, our reading is from John sixteen thirty-one to 33. It says, Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. All right, so is it all right if we start by acknowledging that public speaking is widely recognized as one of the top anxiety-producing experiences in life? Uh, so it's a little ironic to be up here to share a testimony about God's faithfulness and work in and through my anxiety, as well as depression and hopelessness and despair. Um, so I'm going to try not to cry, but I make no guarantees. <laughs> so I admit that when James called and asked me to share. My first thought was that I'm not far enough through this storm to share anything of value. But as I continued to pray about it, God reminded me he's given me an opportunity to proclaim how faithful he has been through long and exhausting seasons of mental health crisis. And that's really all I hope to do today. Now, generally I hate spoilers, but I am going to give you a little one by way of a disclaimer. My testimony is not one of miraculous or instantaneous healing, and I do not claim to have any tidy resolution to offer you. But this isn't really my story anyway. It is God's story of working in dark and scary places despite my weakness and redeeming even my anxiety, my despair, and mental illness. Before I get to that, though, let me give you some background. I was born into a Christian home where we attended church regularly and we were heavily involved. I was only five years old when I first understood the sacrifice Jesus had made and I asked Christ to be my Lord and then was sub subsequently baptized. Unfortunately, at home, an undercurrent of dysfunction stemming from abuse in earlier generations of my family truly devastated our family when my mother left days after I turned 11. From that point on, I often felt like I was trying to gain sure footing on constantly shifting sand, confronted by changing schools, custody arrangements, arguing parents, and family members who were coming and going from my life, as uh, along with significant and multifaceted abuse. It was during those years that I began to experience the physical and mental symptoms that I now understand to be anxiety and depression, along with a few other things. I recall my parents' frustration with me frequently missing school because of these symptoms with no apparent cause. In all of this, I did still believe that God was with me, and even though I wondered why I was hurting all the time, I repeatedly found comfort in the devotionals that I would read. 
God was already showing me that no matter how abandoned I felt, I was never alone. So fast forward a few years, and I actually had my first panic attack in 2005, the week that my husband deployed to Iraq, though I didn't know that that's what it was for many years. It is a terrifying sensation that my heart is beating way too fast and much too hard, among many other symptoms. I was rattled by it, but fortunately, for several years, similar panic attacks were pretty rare, and my anxiety um, seemed mostly manageable under my own power. But, <clears throat> sorry, I have since learned the, some tools for responding to those panic attacks, but unfortunately, I've also learned that I have no control over when they will strike. Sometimes stressful situations may be the catalyst, but often there's no clear reason. But God has used even that uncertainty to continually draw me to himself, as he is the one who created me and knows exactly what's happening within and this is where things get better in some sense, as I have grown in reliance on God, though the situation inside me has gotten worse. First, God, in his infinite and incomprehensible wisdom, through circumstances I never would have chosen, led us to this church. And he graciously began to build community, family really, around us, for which I am deeply grateful, because he knew how much we would need his people to surround us. God started to speak more and more about newness and redemption in my soul. And then a few years ago now, the Holy Spirit made it exceedingly clear that I had an ang anger issue that was impacting all of my relationships. Sorry. Agreeing with the conviction that he brought, I started a journey of healing that uncovered a very deep well of shame and insecurity and grief. And God has been so, so kind, and I am constantly aware of the tenderness he has held me in as I began to release decades of intense bitterness and anger. He patiently revealed both the pain and my own sinful responses and gifted me with dear friends who listen endlessly to my verbal processing. And at the same time, he opened doors and placed very specific calling and purpose in my life to reach out and love others he placed in my path. All the anxiety and fear of shame and humiliation rose up in my throat every single time I tried to share a prayer or show kindness or encouragement with anyone, and it still does. However, as I learned to hand my rage over to God, and the more he confirmed that I am able to pour the things I was learning into others, the more fearful I felt, and the more my anxiety came pouring in, and the less I could manage it. In a short time, my panic attacks increased exponentially. I was having more and more vivid nightmares and flashbacks, and I developed insomnia, and I struggled fiercely with extremely poor coping me methods. And my once fairly benign OCD symptoms badly exacerbated the anxiety and the growing depression. And yet God again had been so, so kind to drive me deeper and deeper into his word. You see, prior to about five years ago, I had read through the whole Bible only once or twice in my life, despite being a church kid. But you can't walk around here for very long without being strongly encouraged to read the Bible and keep reading it and keep reading it some more. And even when I didn't fully comprehend what I was reading, God continued to give me a hunger for it. And he has spoken through it over and over again, sometimes in the most unexpected ways. His word is beautiful, and it has become my lifeline. 
not because I am especially holy or righteous and or good at any of this, but because it has drawn me closer to him. He has given me words straight from the Bible to describe my pain and pour out my soul before him. And in the dead of night, when the panic or the flashback sees control, his spirit calls his words to my memory. When I truly cannot even think for the terror that has taken root in my bones, when my tears have fallen so fiercely that I have become physically ill, I do not have the ability to whisper even the simplest words of my own. But the words of David and Paul, Solomon, Peter, Jeremiah, John, really the words of God spring to my mind. And that is nothing that I am capable of doing on my own. That's all him. So I want to be able to tell you that God has already healed the broken places in my heart, body, and mind. But the truth is, I have spent more days than not in the last two years, especially struggling mightily with suicidal thoughts and ideas. Plans to end my life have pressed to the forefront of my mind, and I have begged with weeping for that to stop. But it hasn't yet. I have forgotten what hope actually feels like, but that does not mean I am without hope. God reminds me constantly through worship, through the Bible, through the words, prayers, and even tears of friends, and through the beauty of creation that he is my sure and steadfast hope. Sorry. I cling to that truth, whether it feels true or not. And because I cannot hold on to him, he holds on to me. This is why I say that things have gotten better, even though it has gotten worse. My own strength is long gone, and I see it every day in the weight I feel on my chest, the lack of energy, and the fear that I cannot go on. But every single day, he meets me with his strength and mercy. He already knows that I am made of dust and cannot muster strength on my own. He knows I am in despair and that my faith falters all too easily. He knows everything in my heart, and he is never ashamed of me or annoyed at my need. Instead, he sustains me, he reminds me of his love, and he continues walking with me and redeeming every anxious moment. Thank you. Thank you, Elisa, so much for sharing. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you, thank you. That is powerful. Um, let's just pray. Jesus, I, I have a trepidation even entering into this subject. Is it someone that is, it, 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 so many, it, it goes so deep with, Lord. So Holy Spirit, I, I just ask for you to speak forth your words, Lord, and guide this time. And prepare our hearts, Lord, the way it is that you would have for us to receive today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, um, thank you again, Elisa. So much courage and bravery to share. And such a testimony of someone that has fought so hard in walking with God in this last season. Um, today's topic is not an easy one. It's one that, that hits close to home for me as well, as, as, as I'll share. But um, that God is with us in the midst of anxiety and despair. If you've watched the news at all in the last couple of years, I'm sure you've seen many articles or many programs re- relating to the, the, the rise of mental health disorders during the last couple of years. I mean, it's reached just truly unprecedented levels. But even prior to COVID hitting, America was already leading the world in mental health issues. And by leading the world, not like in a good way, right? We are number one, but not in the places you want to be number one. We are the worst nation in the world for anxiety and depression and, and so many other statistics you don't want to be number one for. 
It's weird. It seems even the wealthier nations of, of the world are actually the worst when it comes to mental health issues. Worse than nations that are at war and nations struggling with other things. Um, who is it? The, the great philosopher, notorious B.I.G., that once uh, espoused that mo money, mo problems. Um, but it, it continues to increase, and America just keeps getting worse and worse. And before the pandemic hit, I mean, I think it was almost 10 years ago that a psychologist, Robert Lee, I read a, a, a quote that he said that the average height, and this was almost 10 years ago, that the average high school student today, he said, has the same levels of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s, right? And that was like 10 years ago. And in the last 10 years, it has gotten so much worse. In fact, in the last two, last two years, clinically significant anxiety diagnoses have more than doubled in our youth in just the last two years. The younger generation are by far more affected by this than any of the other generations, and, and though, which is fascinating because anecdotal evidence tells me that's insane because every week I have adults, 35, 40 and over, in my office talking to me about issues with anxiety and depression. Constantly. I know it's an issue. Statistics say one out of five adults are struggling with anxiety and, other, and, and far more of that mental health issue, and, and that one out of three of the young people are struggling with the same thing. In fact, a recent study showed that 48% of 18 to 25-year-olds acknowledge that they have mental health disorders of some kind that are going on. And of those, almost 50% of our young people are struggling with mental health issues. It says less than half of them are actually receiving any kind of assistance or help. I mean, these, these numbers may just roll off one after the other, but this is horrific of what's going on. And if you're like me, and you're over 40, I just turned 43 a few, a few weeks back, the world that kids are growing up in today is, is radically different than the world that I grew up in. If you're over 60, the world kids are growing up in today is like a different planet from the one you grew up in, right? And do not arrogantly think that, you know, that, that kids these days are coddled too much or some else kind of issue or, or making jokes about millennials today and their mental health days, right? The, the, the truth is that, our, that some of us may think, well, our generations were stronger. We were different back in the day. But if you're over 40, it's your generation. My generation and above are the ones that created the world today, created the mental health issues of today, that made that our young people, the systems, the technologies, other things that are going on that incubates anxiety in our young people. If you were born today, you would be struggling with the same issues that they are, right? This is a real pandemic that's going on right now. And so this morning, there's a couple passages I want to look at. And we're starting in John chapter 16, the reading that was done today. And, and Jesus, this is right before he died. In fact, I did a whole series on 14 to 17 back in the spring. But I want to look just at this one passage briefly before we jump into our main text. And, and after, telling, after Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die, and in fact that they are all going to suffer, he tells them this in verse 32. He says, But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Well, they will desert him. And he says, Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you all this, he says, so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world, he says. So Jesus tells them that he's going to die, that great sorrows and trials and sufferings are going to come upon them. And then he says, all of you will desert me. All of you will run in fear and anxiousness and you will leave me. Every single one of you, you're going to run away. And then he says this, I'm telling you this, now referring to all that he's told them, but specifically to the fact that they will run away from him very soon because of what he's done. I'm telling you this, he says, because he says, why? So that in me, you may have peace. 
Jesus says, in me you will have peace. Not that I will just give you a feeling of peace, but he says that that Jesus, he is our prince of peace and our source of peace, that he is peace. That peace is not just a feeling. It's not something he just gives us for a one time, but peace is a person and peace's name is Jesus, right? He says, in me you will have peace. Not just when you're facing difficulty or facing anxiety or depression, but even when you fail, you will have peace, When you run away, when you're a total coward living in shame, when you're in complete shame, like Peter running away from little teenage girls in shame after he deserts Jesus, leaving Jesus for dead. Jesus says, when you're hating yourself and you're in shame, in me you will have peace. Do not forget what I'm telling you right now. I will give you my peace even after you've run from me and left me for dead. I mean, this is incredible. In advance of them running, Jesus lets them know, in advance, you're going to do this, and when you do, know that I am your peace. And here's that but God moment here. He says, on earth, you will have trials and sorrows. Not may, but you will. But for those who remain in me, who turn to me, I will give them peace in me. Again, not just a feeling. How will I do it, he says? Because I have overcome the world. Speaking prophetically what, about, what he's about to do on the cross of dying, of breaking the power of death. They wouldn't even understood it at the time. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world and I'm going to give my life for you. I will defeat sin and declare victory over death and sin and sorrow and pain and sickness and anxiety and shame. And he's declaring it as a present reality. He says, therefore, you can trust me because I have overcome the world. And so in me, there is peace because I am the overcomer. It's kind of like a mountain climber who's climbed the mountains many, many times, and, and, and they're on this tall mountain, and this experienced mountain climber is going with an inexperienced one. He's climbed it so many times, and he's completely confident. He's got a rope attached to the younger, inexperienced climber who's starting to freak out along the way, thinking, I can't make this. And the experienced climber is able to say, you don't need to be afraid, right? I've got this. I've done this many times. Just come with me. I know the way. So this is Jesus saying that he is our peace. That we will face sorrow, we will face pain, we will experience anxiousness and shame, but Jesus is our peace because he's overcome. So now I want to jump to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is is considered one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. It's it's one that that people don't often sing. In fact, it's it's rarely sung by, by people today, though that's not the case historically. We're going to look at it today and then a bit again next week as, as we continue. This is kind of like a two-parter this week and next week, but um, I want to read it together. It starts by saying, this is the song by Haman the Ezraite, and it begins like this. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed by troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken me from the closest of my friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Because that's how he feels. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. 
In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Wow. This is clearly a psalm of lament. In fact, it's the most lamentation of all the laments in the psalms. Um, it, the psalms, 40% of you may not know of the psalms are actually the laments. What makes this one unique in Psalm 39 of the two is that, and this is even more than 39, is that it's the only ones that, that don't actually finish with hope in the midst of it, which is why it, it stands out. Of the psalms, if you include all psalms that have laments within them, then 70% of the psalms are laments. Now, this is a common way in which the authors back then used to write. Not so common today, but very common back then. In fact, this one's similar to the Lamentations passage we looked at just a few weeks ago in Jeremiah. I mean, would you be comfortable praying this prayer? Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths, he says. Your wrath, God, lies heavily upon me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. I mean, look what he's saying. Verse 5, he says, Oh God, I'm like a dead, forgotten soldier on a battlefield, rotting in a shallow grave that you, God, put me in. Anyone ever said that to God? Verse 7, he says, I am drowning in the waves because of you, God. Anyone comfortable praying that out to God? Verse 8, I have no friends left because of you, God, the psalmist says. And not only is this in the Bible, but this is a song that is supposed to be sung. It starts that way. A song by the sons of Korah. This is supposed to be sung by the church. And it has been sung billions of times over the years by the church of Christ. God wanted this prayer here for some reason. He wanted it to be sung. And the question is, why does God want us singing this insanely depressing song? Why does he want us to pray it? And so I want to look a little closer at this psalm today. So first, it tells us the author is this guy named Haman. Um, it's pronounced Haman, but it's spelled He-Man. You know, like, I have the power, my favorite hero from when I was young. So I like this dude. Now, we're going to learn more about him next week as we continue with this. But, but, but recently, Haman's become one of my heroes, as I'll share. But Scripture tells us that Haman was one of the wisest men alive. In fact, Solomon compares himself to him, saying, even wiser than Haman. And he was one of the leading musicians of the temple. He was the worship leader in the temple. And he is also a prophet. And this is the only psalm that we have. This is his one shot in the hymnal book of the church history. And he begins as he opens it up in the first verse. He says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. So he's reproaching God morning and daily, continuing to bring his despair to the Lord. In the morning and evenings, he says he comes to the Lord and brings this, this feelings of pain and despair before him multiple times a day. He does not stop coming before God in the midst of all that he's facing. He keeps coming again and again, and that is critical. He does not stop day after day, morning after evening, morning after evening. He says it again in verse 9. My eyes are dim with grief, he says. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you, he says. 
And then verse 13 again, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So we can see that Haman loves the Lord deeply. But at the time that this is written, he's clearly, not just this time, for a while, he's going through a time of incredible darkness. And he writes this psalm, and it's not just a personal journal entry that's supposed to remain private, but it's a public song to be sang by the entire nation of Israel and for the history of the church. I mean, could you imagine if Esther got up and was singing this song before us? I mean, how many of you would just join in happy clappy like we were today? I mean, this is, right, this is, it's not really that kind of song. It's, it's a death dirge, it feels like. Now, next week, again, we're, we're going to pick up more of it, but I want to bring up this week because why is this psalm in the Bible? Did this psalm somehow just get slipped in? Did maybe Haman kind of slip it in, kind of like pork barrel spending by some senator that gets stuck into some congressional budget and no one has a chance to be able to look at it, right? I was looking at the thing, that omnibus bill. It said like 4,300 things were included in that bill and no one had a chance to read them, right? Is that how this stuff gets in? Someone just slips it in? Obviously not. God wants people to sing this stuff. He wants people to be praying this prayer. So why? Why should we be singing about being overwhelmed? Why should we sing about drowning? Why should we pray about feeling like we're under God's wrath? Why should we pray about feeling like we've been suffering to the point of death since our youth? Why should we pray that God is hiding his face for us or that darkness is our closest friend, meaning that we are closer to darkness, or darkness is a closer friend than God himself? I love what the scholar Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Psalms. He says, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. God knows that darkness sometimes doesn't pass quickly. He knows that sometimes we experience loss and pain and anxiety and sorrow and hardship, and it doesn't just go away with a prayer. Sometimes it lingers, and in this case... Haman says that this darkness, this anxiety, this sorrow and despair have been with him since his youth. He has so many doubts, so many questions that are unanswered. And yet what is crazy here is Haman is not just some burnt out ex-Christian, you know, trolling Christian posts on Twitter and Facebook about why everyone should just leave organized religion and leave this old religious God and you'll turn towards being spiritually but not religious. He's not just trolling people and walking out of bitterness. Instead, Haman is one of the chief choir masters of the temple. He is the chief, one of the chief worship leaders of the temple, working directly with David. He's a composer of worship songs. He's there leading the nation of Israel in worship through the most incredible time. He's there leading these psalms of praise. He was there leading worship when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. Remember that story when David is dancing naked before the Ark? That is Haman leading worship that day. When the temple is finally built under Solomon and the Shekinah glory of God falls upon the temple, experiencing the manifest presence of God, Haman was leading worship that day, singing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Haman was there as one of the chief worship leaders. It's the same guy. Haman knows God very well and he knows that God is good. And that's why he writes this song. And that's why this song is in the Bible. Because while many times we sing about God's faithfulness, we praise him, and we give testimonies of miracles and victories and and overcoming and healings and deliverances and financial provisions and, and a new car or a house or addictions being broken, and that's awesome, and we praise God, and we celebrate that. 
But Haman knows that sometimes those things don't happen in our timing or even this side of eternity. And Haman knows and God knows that sometimes the bills are left unpaid. Sometimes the child is lost. Sometimes the cancer doesn't stop. Sometimes the anxiety doesn't go away. Sometimes the depression doesn't lift. Sometimes the addiction keeps coming back with a vengeance. And sometimes darkness feels like our closest friend day after day, year after year. And so Haman pens this incredibly honest song that in the midst of the pain and the hopelessness, every day, twice a day, he says, he keeps coming before God, praying, pressing in, praising God, refusing to turn away because he knows that God alone is his peace, that his hope is found in no one else, even when God feels out of reach. Jesus would say the same thing a thousand years later in that opening passage we looked at today, that in me you will have peace. It's only found in me. But there will be sorrows and trials and hardships and anxiety and shame and despair and pain, but peace is found in me alone. Casting Crowns wrote a brilliant song about this, about I will praise you in the storm that I love very much. I want to talk a, a bit about one of the, the great saints of, of the Christian history who, who wrote a commentary on this, and that's Charles Spurgeon. He wrote one of the greatest commentaries on the Psalms. Um, and this was written in the late 1800s. And Charles Spurgeon, just, you know, is one of the, the most amazing men. He, he, he preached over 10 million people in his lifetime. This was 150 years ago. He, he preached uh, over 3,500 sermons, 10 sermons a week. He was an incredible, incredible and brilliant man, a, a, just a stud of theology and, and teaching and evangelism. And I just want to say that you can disagree with his theology, but you can't disagree with the fact that there are very few people who have ever lived who have devoted their lives so wholeheartedly to the gospel and its spread than Charles Spurgeon. And just kind of a side point here, because I get some emails sometimes, but just because I respect someone or quote someone doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. I just want to say that, right? I've got a bunch of emails saying, did you know that person you quoted also said? And yes, there's, there's no one on earth I agree with everything they say, right? Just so just, you can keep the email to yourself this week. Um, but <laughs> Spurgeon suffered most of his life from a terrible depression, right? And, and, and sickness and ailments, and, and they often left him spending months unable to even minister because his depression was so massive. And, and I'm going to give a few quotes from him, but this is directly out of his commentary on Psalm 88, where he's referring to Haman here. And, and just so you know, I think I said it before, but all my slides and discussion questions are right available on our website. If you go there, there's a big box in the center that says sermon discussion questions, and the, out the sermon slide lines, the sermon slides are all there, as well as discussion questions for small groups or for your own study in the week. So here's what he says. He says, Haman felt as if he were as utterly forgotten as those whose carcasses are left to rot on the battlefield. That's what we saw earlier. As when a soldier mortally wounded bleeds unheeded amid the heaps of slain and remains to his last expiring groan, unpitied and unsuckered, that means unaided, so did Haman sigh out of his soul in loneliest sorrow, feeling as if even God himself had quite forgotten him. So then Spurgeon brings this to the present day application. He says this, How low the spirits of good and brave men will sometimes sink under the influence of certain disorders. By that, he's referring to his own depression. Everything will wear a somber aspect and the heart will dive into the profoundest deeps of misery. So now, now what he's about to do is he's about to address immature Christians who for some reason feel very uncomfortable with weakness and depression and all these things and, and emotions and anxiety. He feel, people that feel the need to you know, always claim a victorious Christian life and get uncomfortable when Christians acknowledge weakness, like they're uncomfortable with my preachings the last few weeks. Um, and he says this, he says, it's all very well for those who are in robust health. 
and full of spirits and blame those whose lives are sicklied over with the pale cast of melancholy. But the evil, meaning the depression and anxiety is what he's referring to, is as real as a gaping wound and all the more hard to bear because it lies so much in the region of the soul. That to the inexperienced, to those who, who, may, who may knock this, it appears to be mere matter of dis- diseased imagination to feel those depressions and feelings, those anxieties. Meaning what he's saying is for those who haven't experienced real depression and anxiety attacks, it just seems that they're weak-minded, overly emotional people. But then he says this, Reader, never ridicule the nervous or the anxious and diseased and depressed. Their pain is real, though much of the evil lies in the imagination. It is not imaginary. He goes on. Spurgeon says in Psalm 88 that he's showing that what Haman writes about is real, right? He's showing that it's very, very real. He's saying that he identifies with Haman here and that he understands what it feels like to live fighting in the midst of darkness being his closest friend. And then another place, Spurgeon says this, and I want you to follow this stuff's just incredible. He says, this is 150 years ago. He says, you may be surrounded with all the comforts of life and yet be in wretchedness more gloomy than death if the spirits are depressed. You may have no outward cause whatever for sorrow, and yet in the mind, if the mind is dejected, the brightest sunshine will not relieve your gloom. Again, this is the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon saying this. This isn't just some guy who's laying back saying, woe is me. He's one of the most hardcore evangelists the world has ever seen. And, and he was open about his depression and his insecurities. And this was way before Brene Brown made this cool on TED Talks, right? This is awesome. And he says, there are times when all our evidence gets clouded and all our joys are fled. Here it is. Though we may still cling to the cross, yet it is with a desperate grasp. That to me sounds just like Haman. To me, that sounds like Elisa's testimony this morning. To me, that sounds like Jesus that we will face trials and sorrows, but his peace is the only place that, is, that true hope is found. Spurgeon goes on to say, I have two more quotes from him. He says, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. This is just nuts. He said this 150 years ago. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. You get the depth of that? Physically, you can only be cut so many times before all the blood is gone. He's saying in the soul and in the mind, we can keep going lower and lower and lower and die every minute of every hour over and over again. And for those that have experienced true depression or anxiety, they know exactly what he's talking about. Last quote, he says, he puts the suffering into perspective. I love this. He says, I am afraid that all the grace I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy times might almost fit on the top of a penny. <laughs> Everything I've learned from all my times of comfort would fit on a penny, he said. But the good I have received from the sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best book in a minister's library, he says. And he goes on, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health. Amen! With the exception of sickness. (laughs) Oh, dude, this guy's amazing. If some men whom I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, that's painful arthritis, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. (laughs) You gotta love this guy. Now, please hear his words. If there are any... If there are any who hear this and think, you know, that people just need to be stronger, like these are guys just like, they're just fatalistic. You just need to pray more. You just need to trust more. You just need to read your Bible more. 
that these are just kind of namby-pamby Christians who get too stuck in their own stuff, and, and Spurgeon just should have got out, gotten over himself, and if only he read the Bible more. Paul used the same language. In fact, Jesus used the same language. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. I am so anxious and so overwhelmed, I want to die, Jesus said. If Spurgeon seems weak to you, as John the Baptist said about Jesus, you probably wouldn't even be worthy to untie the straps of his sandals if you were alive back then. So now, now time to get a bit honest with my own story. A couple weeks ago, I shared a story of my own sexual abuse, and it was, it was pretty raw, and it's a bit hard to share, but it's a story I've shared a number of times, and this story I'm going to share is one that's almost kind of harder, only because I've not shared it publicly, because it's recent, but more difficult just because it's recent, as in now. Um, and, and so I, I want to be able to share it, because it relates. My whole life, I've been known as being pretty unflappable, right? I've, I've struggled a lot with kind of emotional health over much of my life, but I'm the guy you want in a crisis as a result of that. I'm the guy that's always cool-headed. I, I actually love stress. I love stress. I, I love to have my plate overflowing. I love deadlines. I, I love having a bunch of plates spinning at once. I love being in over my head. I, I, I seek out conflict sometimes. I love it. I love the stress. It, it makes me excited. It, it makes me feel on energy. It's not something I take pride in, but it's something I'm grateful for. That, that That's just kind of how I respond to stress. I seek it out. I love it. I love having those things going on. And I've had kind of a big motor my entire life. I've always had a, a, a large capacity above average. And I mean, friends that work with me, he used to always call me the Energizer Bunny because I just kind of kept going. And, I, and, I, and even if with good, healthy rhythms, I just love that fact that I could always put more on the plate. Well, all that was until a few months ago after Easter. The, the week after Easter, um, I, I was with Steve and Pam, my wife, at uh, a pastor's conference, the one we all got COVID at and, and shut to the church, started, shut the church on, but we weren't here for a couple weeks. But, um, uh, but I, I while there, uh, it, it was on, the whole, sub, the whole conference was on transitions and, and all the rest. And, and while there, the second night that I was there, I, I woke up, or actually, right, as I was laying down to bed, I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, and I was laying, my wife was asleep, and I was laying there. My, my chest was so tight, the world was spinning around me, and I was, my, my heart rate was over 130, and I was convinced I was having a heart attack. I'm sitting with my phone saying, do I call 911 or not? I remember I start Googling like heart attack symptoms and it's saying, you know, it could also be anxiety attack. And I'm like, I've never had anxiety in my life. Don't know what that is. This seems like a heart attack. And the more I'm reading, the more it's like describing all these anxiety symptoms. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, should I call? Should I call? I don't want to make a big deal. I'm at this thing. It's going to be really awkward if I go to the hospital uh, in the middle of this pastor's conference, like not a good move. Um, and, and so I, I couldn't sleep. And the more I read, the more I realized this is probably an anxiety attack. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I don't get anxiety. I can accept a heart attack more than I can, I can accept an anxiety attack. Um, and my heart just kept racing, and it made no sense. The more I read, I was convinced that's, in fact, what it was. Never had this ever happened to me in my life before. And I, I was up almost the entire night just exhausted, and I, and I prayed my brains out that night. But every time I prayed, it got worse. Every time I tried to sleep, it got worse. I remember just watching, like, Netflix comedy specials in the night, just trying to distract myself, getting up and walking around. And finally, uh, the next day happened, and that whole day, my, tight, my chest was so tight. I, my heart was beating so fast. I was so nervous. And I powered through the day, and, and we went home. And I, I remember I was scared and angry, and I was downing Tums trying to deal with this chest tightness issue in my chest and trying to figure what's going on. And I'm just praying and saying, I'm going to kick this thing in the teeth. I'm going to beat this thing. I don't know what's going on. I got a few months to do this because I'm not taking over the senior pastor role until September. And so I got some time to kind of figure this out before I step into this role. I'm like, okay, I got this. Well, a couple days later on the Friday, Steve gives me a call and he tells me, hey, James, we've been praying and I feel it's time for we're to change the subject or we're to change the timeline and uh, I'm going to step down uh, probably end of May. And so by, by June, you're likely going to be stepping in the senior pastor role. I'm like, 
okay, awesome, very cool. I got a month or so to get figure this thing out. Um, and then the next morning was our men's breakfast. Some of you guys were there. Some of you were at the table with me. And as I was sitting there at men's breakfast, uh, David Weed was speaking, and my heart was beating like crazy. I kept checking my watch, like 120, all the way to 130. And as David starts speaking, I'm sure it was a wonderful message. Um, no idea what he said. Uh, I'm holding onto my chair, and the world starts spinning around me. I remember just thinking, I'm about ready to collapse. I'm going to fall down. I remember sitting there going, how, how is this? My, my introduction to all these men is going to be me falling down, collapsing in the middle of the floor with all these guys at the men's breakfast. I remember laying there, as, as, as sitting there, holding on to the chair, just begging God to not let me fall. As the world's just spinning and this heavy pan attack is overwhelming me. And I'm thinking, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. But like, if I stand, I will not be able to walk. I will fall down. I remember people talking to me, me just going, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And just saying, Lord, begging God to take this away in the moment. And as the world spins and I'm sitting there, just begging him to let me sit there. I somehow managed to make it through that day. And I got home and I realized I need help. All the prayer in the world was not making it for me. And I started to truly panic. As I, as I was sitting there, I began to like have stupid thoughts running through my head. I began to wonder, is my career as a pastor over before it even really gets, stuck, gets kicked off? I remember sitting there thinking, would I be able to support my family anymore? Do I have to go back? And, and if, if I can't be a pastor anymore, maybe we go back to be a missionary and go back overseas again, but who's going to support you know, a flamed out pastor who can't even stand or, or finish a meal with his friends? Like these stupid thoughts are running through my head. Like my career's over. Like I don't, how am I going to even pay the bills for our family if I can't get a job because I can't handle stress anymore? I'm like, what is going on with me? I remember thinking at the time that this, this is just absolutely stupid. Like, am I too broken for ministry? I mean, what can I do that, that, that's not going to be stressful? And anytime I thought about anything that was stressful, it got worse. I thought about my father and his cancer or the church finances, or the transition. It just started spiraling out of control. And I kept saying, this doesn't happen to me. I'm not the guy who gets stressed. I don't struggle with anxiety. I'm the guy other people go to when they struggle with anxiety, right? I'm the one that has my office filled with people with depression and anxiety. I'm the guy that's lived in war zones. I'm the guy that's faced death countless times. This is nothing compared to what I've dealt with my entire life. And I said, I have no legitimate reason to feel this way. It's not even real stress. I've counseled people to have reasons to feel the way I'm feeling. I don't have any good reasons for this, right? Everyone's dad dies at some point, right? This shouldn't be that big of a deal to me. Every church transitions. It's just a job change. Why is this hitting me? Everyone has financial struggles. Why? I've dealt with it my entire life in ministry of living a life as a missionary. But nothing compared to the 25 years that I've been in ministry that had ever brought me to the point that I was at. And that day I realized I, I was desperate and I needed help. I couldn't beat this on my own. All the prayer in the world wasn't helping me. In fact, and sometimes it even made me more anxious, if I'm honest. As I was reading the Bible, it just made me feel worse and worse and worse and more ashamed of how can I feel the way I feel. And I knew I had to fight it, but I couldn't fight by myself. And so I did a few things. I set up an appointment with a good therapist. I went to my doctor. I, I met with three or four uh, really well-known uh, or uh, successful church coaches and pastors in the area. And I started my typical response to any challenge, which is I got as many books as I could get my hands on and just read constantly about anxiety and, and all this kind of stuff. And long story short, I learned that my body doesn't care what I think. Um, my mind doesn't really care what I think. It doesn't care about my delusions of grandeur. It doesn't care about my delusions saying that I'm a machine and that it doesn't affect me. Like none of that actually affects my body. My body said it was done. It said that cumulatively all the things that I've been going through over the last number of years and the war zones and all the rest of it and my dad and the transition to America and all the rest of it, all these things cumulatively were affecting me in ways that I couldn't make sense of. And it doesn't matter what I felt about it. My body said it was done. It was just another layer of the onion of becoming human, the way that Christ is that, that the Lord was teaching me. 
I didn't stop praying. In fact, I had some other people praying for me. I mean, a while ago, God broke the desire. This was years ago. God broke the desire of me to appear strong, right? That, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And I knew even when this thing this hit that, that the only thing I would boast of is his strength and my weakness, just like Paul said. And I knew I'd be sharing this honestly. And I knew even the, the, within a few days of it happening that someday I'm going to have to be preaching on this uh, because I have to be honest. But three massive things changed my circumstance, and I want to say this. So first, the thing I did, I mean, outside of prayer, uh, but I met with a therapist who helped me understand. It was massive. He helped me understand physiologically what's going on in the midst of, of anxiety, and that mattered a lot to me. Understand what's going, this is where my brain works. Help me to understand what's happening in my brain, and he gave me some emergency tools of how to deal with panic attacks that, you know, box breathing and, and, and getting and changing the circumstances and vocalizing, all the rest of it. Those that have had panic attacks, you know that stuff. But then the second thing I did is I met with these other pastors who were very successful, and, and each of them shared with me their own journeys with anxiety and depression. In fact, two of them are still on anxiety meds to this day, years and years later, having really successful ministries, leading thousands of people. And I recognize that even if my anxiety doesn't go away, I can still be a pastor even from a place of weakness, or maybe better said, especially from a place of weakness. Spurgeon used to say in the midst of depression and his ailments, he used to say, think not that all is over with your usefulness. And the third thing I do is I met with a doctor, uh, my, my, my GP, and um, he recommended first that I remove stress from my life. Uh, that would be great uh, as I'm walking straight into the most stressful season of my life. Um, but, and then he prescribed some anti-anxiety, med, anti-anxiety meds for me in the process, which have been such a blessing for me. But I recognized something quickly in this process, and that was my life would have to change. I can no longer just take on anything. My capacity is no longer uh, what it used to be. I used to know my limits, which was nice because I could know what I could do. I mean, kind of like a basketball player that, or a professional basketball player that can jump up and kind of decide what to do with the ball. They know what their body can do. They know how to make the shot. Before, I knew what I could do, and now I'm at a place where I actually don't know where my limits are. I don't know when my body will say, you're done. <laughs> I don't know when that anxiety is going to kick in. And so I had to say no a lot more than I used to say no. I've had to remove myself from non-essential decision-making stuff because I start feeling the stress kick in. And I'm praying now more than I ever have in my life, and I know I can't rely on myself the way I used to. It's a massive learning curve for me right now. And I can often even feel the medication literally working in my system as I can feel my heart rate increase, but thankfully that panic doesn't set in, it doesn't kick in as much. I, I, and it was just, it was I don't know, like a month ago or a few weeks ago, I was feeling sorry for myself about this whole thing, right? Because I, I saw this anxiety as something I need to overcome. It's a weakness that I need to destroy and I need to attack. And I was meeting with my therapist that day and I was frustrated with my weakness and I was annoyed that I, that, that I was no longer in control. And I saw my anxiety again only as weakness. And my therapist asked me a really important question. He said, James, do you think it's possible that your anxiety is not a handicap but a blessing? Nope. Um, Let's keep, keep going. <laughs> um, do you think it's possibly said that the Holy Spirit wants you to use it, so, or wants to use it to make you a better vessel that he can work through, where you won't be able to do as much on your own, where you have a greater need for God and you have a greater need for others? That maybe this is God's way of making sure that you stay off the throne in your life and make sure that he stays on it. And it really began to hit me. Not that I want this to be there. I'm like, okay, Lord, if this is of you, use it, Lord. Somehow draw myself deeper into you. May you use this to help me to bless other people in some way. And, you know, just how I used my own story of sexual abuse allowed me to bless I mean, thousands of people over the years that are walking through that. Maybe now I guess I can relate to the 50% of young people who are struggling with anxiety and the, the massive number of adults who are doing it as well. And 
A few weeks ago in my quiet time, I was in Mark 6 where Jesus is feeding the 5,000 and the apostles are freaking out and the people are, need to be fed and they're like, what are we going to do? And, and Jesus tells them, that they tell Jesus, send them home. And Jesus says, no, 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 you feed them. He's testing them, right? He's just messing with them. You feed them. And they go, what? We can't feed these guys. We don't have enough money. It would take years to make enough money. What are you talking about? And they go around looking for money. Jesus says, what do you have in your hands? Like we got some bread and some fish. So it's you feed them. Like we can't do this. And the whole thing Jesus is wanting to say, of course you can't but I want to take the feeble offerings that you have and then I want to bless that and use that to feed the crowds and the multitudes. But it's about my strength, not yours. Right? And I just broke down. I'm like, Lord, I'm trying to feed everyone. Right? That's, that's the way I've lived my life. Like, I do it with your strength, but ah, I don't like this idea of where this is going. And what's so amazing about Haman is this dude in his brokenness, in his wrestle with darkness being his closest friend, impacted countless more people than Spurgeon ever did. Literally billions of people have been impacted through the life of Haman. Not just thousands of Israelites. As he led worship, he, and, and he kept daily coming back to the Lord, seeking the Lord and trusting God, even when he felt like he was drowning. And that doesn't mean I can just sit back and fatalistically say, woe is me, look at my situation, I guess this is my lot in life. No, we have to fight. Haman was fighting every day. He was not fatalistic. He kept pressing in. Spurgeon never stopped fighting, daily taking it to the Lord, hourly sometimes doing it. And I've been daily fighting every day since this thing hit me, fighting through a renewed prayer life, fighting through uh, educating myself on anxiety, fighting by having a regular intense meetings with a therapist that will be ongoing for a while and often leave me exhausted afterwards, fighting by taking medication to try and give me tools to help what's going on in the situation. Thank you, Jesus, for Lexapro. Fighting for, for better boundaries and setting better boundaries in my life and for more sensitive, being more sensitive to what my heart's feeling and my, the, 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 the speed of my heart and the things that are being put on my, my plate, fighting by giving more time to rest in the Lord, my favorite book of all the books I've read in this last season on this subject was one just written a few months ago called uh, Attacking Anxiety by Sean Johnson. Sean Johnson is the pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in America called Red Rocks Church out of Utah. Their worship bands are pretty famous. Um, anyways, he just wrote this book, talked about in 2019, how he, he, he shared how his whole life he struggled with depression and suicide and, and all this anxiety. And in 2019, he was driving, overwhelmed, stopped his car on the side of the freeway, called his wife and said, I'm done, come get me, and hung up the phone. He's just like, I can't do it any longer. Checked himself into a two-month inpatient treatment facility and began his journey towards finally dealing with this stuff. And this book just addresses the steps that he took to be able to get health in that way. I cannot recommend it enough. To me, it's the best of anyone in the, the appendix has a wonderful section on like emergency steps for dealing with panic attacks. If you struggle with anxiety, please buy that book. Or if you have friends that do, please buy that book. But uh, I, as I'm sharing this, I recognize there might be some Christians that could be uncomfortable as I finish this message up and wrap it up because why am I not just quoting Philippians 4, 6 over and over again? which says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, take our requests to God by prayer and supplication. I mean, I actually gave a great sermon, in my opinion, on that last February. You can go check it out on YouTube. Uh, it's a wonderful message. It was from a different season of my life, but still, I still hold everything I said. It was great. Uh, you can go listen. I think it's like February 6th or something like that, 2021. Go listen. It's wonderful. I, I, not that I don't believe that. I've prayed that prayer so many times in the last month or, three, or last few months. And I'm not, not saying that we don't hold on. Yes, he is our hope. And yes, we hold on to him. I absolutely am holding on to those promises. I'm absolutely taking my request to God and, and I'm showing gratitude to him and all the rest of it. And there's not enough time in one sermon to address all aspects of anxiety and depression. But today, the part I'm try, I am feel led to really focus upon as you look at Psalm 88 is the fact that sometimes we have to learn what God is doing in the midst of it, not just when it's over. 
And we're going to talk more about it next week, but there's many examples of Scripture of where, Jesus, where, where people have a thorn in the flesh kind of idea where it remains, where like Haman or Spurgeon or the Apostle Paul, God meets us right in that moment, right where we're at, and draws us to him in the midst of it, just like Elisa's testimony. This is, I hope this is just a short season of my life where I gain a great victory and someday we'll stand up here and say, woohoo, it's all over. Um, but I also recognize that might not be the case. And as Christians, we are not called to hide our brokenness, especially at church. Yet sometimes that's the place where we talk about where Christians sometimes fake it more than any other place. I mean, imagine going to the ER, the emergency room, because you have a broken arm, right? And you can't move it. And everyone's like, you need to go, yeah. And when you get there and the doctor says, what's going on? You're like, fine, right? Totally cool. Absolutely fine. Does it hurt anywhere? Nope. He grabs your arm. Does that hurt? You're like, nope, fine, totally fine, right? Because you're so ashamed, maybe because of how you broke it. When I was in junior high, or it was elementary school, or it must have been junior high, I, was play, I, 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 I broke my, uh, I fractured part of my foot because I was practicing MC Hammer's uh, dance moves in my basement, right? Uh, and, and, and everyone asked me, he's like, what did, how did you injure yourself? And I'm like, football. Yeah, we were, I was going to tackle, and I just was football, but it was literally while trying to do ham, copy MC Hammer uh, in my basement, sliding on my carpet. Um, imagine if, just pretending it's not that, imagine if we just pretended. But that's what we do as a church. We feel ashamed if we're anxious or depressed, and so we hide it and we cover it over and pretend that it's not there. And sadly, I think one of the reasons is because we don't spend enough time in Psalm 88 or 39 or so many other passages where it's okay, where this is actually part of God put this there because he understands. He understands anxiety and depression and loss and sorrow. Jesus knows it all. We don't need to fake it. We can be honest with one another. And it's why I'm sharing my, my story publicly. Um, we, we can deny what's happening in our heart, and, and we can try to just put on a happy face. But here in Scripture, God acknowledges the anxiety and the pain and the darkness. Jesus experienced this, and only Jesus provides the way out. So we need to be honest with God and with one another as well. If you're wrestling with anxiety or depression or sorrow and loss, do not stop fighting. Pray it to the Lord like Haman. Don't just sit there and wrestle, but put it in a prayer and pray it and sing it to the Lord. Sometimes the but God testimony is amazing and miraculous. Other time, our but God testimony is just like Elisa. And just like I'm sharing now, it's a daily thing every day of God being sufficient for the day. So what do we do with our anxiety and despair? We take it to the Prince of Peace. Morning, noon, and night, the one who has overcome the world. Like Haman, the worship leader. So we're going to worship this morning. Worship team, you can come forward. Um, we turn our anxiety... We turn our despair, we turn our depression into worship. We worship God right in the midst of it, right through it. And God meets us right where we are in the midst of our weakness. Jesus is my peace. He is my only hope and he's our only hope. He has conquered and we will conquer through him. So like Haman and Spurgeon and the Apostle Paul, I'll keep taking my anxiety to him every single day and I'm trusting him for healing, but I also recognize that my anxiety might actually be the thorn in my flesh that enables Jesus to do what he wants to do through my life. And not just every day do I go to him, but frequently it's every hour. So many mornings during the last few months, there's been four words on my heart as I wake up in the morning and begin praying. And just, it's over and over again. It's just four words, and it's just, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Just over and over, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. So I'm in prayer so often. That's just like a breath prayer. Just, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you, Lord. And that's been my favorite song this last few weeks, and I've asked if we can finish with it today. 
So as we finish with this last song, I want to encourage you to pray this song out. If you're in a place of darkness, in a place of despair, struggling, or, or, or journeying alongside those that are, pray this out this morning as a prayer. I want to encourage you. You can stand, but get on your knees and just before God as a position of surrender to say, Jesus, I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. So Jesus, right now, we just say we need you. Even as I share this, I mean, my head's just all over the space. Obviously, trying to share on this publicly is, is about anxiety, as Lisa said. It's not easy. And so I just pray right now, Lord, may you move in our midst. May you bring your peace, the Prince of Peace, bring your peace right now into our lives, Lord. Open up the areas of our hearts that have, where there's been shame or we felt distanced, Lord, and help us to take it to you right now, Lord Jesus. And just say, Lord, we need you every hour. Thank you, Lord.